0: If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to the book of 1 John. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we're, we're going to get after it because it's going to be fun. Um, but as we said in the first service, it's, it's going to get real, and it's going to get real, real fast. So let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you so much for the continued privilege that we have to gather as your people. Uh, I thank you, God, that you are good, um, and as your word says, you are light. And I ask this morning that uh, the light of your holiness and of your character would shine uh, in our hearts and in our souls this morning, uh, that we would see you for who you are, uh, that we would see ourselves in light of that, and that we would run with passion and run with gusto towards Jesus as the only one who can save us from our sins, forgive us from our sins, cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Let Jesus be the hero this morning, Lord. We ask this for his namesake and his glory and our joy. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, 1 John, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the end of 1 John chapter 1 this morning, and instead of just jumping to these last few verses, what I want to do is I want to read the verses ahead of it uh, in chapter 1 so that you can kind of hear the end in context, and along the way I'll remind you of some things that we've said for the last few weeks, Uh, but my prayer is that as we get to this spot, it will all kind of make sense to you as John is writing it. So if you've got it, open it up, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1, this is what John says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And we spent time a few weeks ago talking about the sum and the substance of this message that John is proclaiming to be the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the center of John's message in this letter. This letter is all about Jesus. This is what John is talking about. And he goes on, he says, we're proclaiming him to you, Jesus to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We talked about this koinonia, this deep and abiding fellowship that is ours as followers of Christ through faith in Jesus. Something that tr- transcends relationships built on convenience and affinity. It's a, a relationship that, that experiences and reflects the relationship that God has within himself. I mean, it is an unspeakably great Privilege. This is what John is reminding them of and calling their attention towards. Then he says in verse 4 one of the first reasons why he's writing all these things. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is writing this entire letter we talked about to reinforce the faith of this young church to reinforce the assurance that they have and the faith that they hold fast to, to reinforce their understanding of the truth to which they have believed, to reinforce the need for the ongoing growth and maturity and, and holiness as to mark God's people. But first, he says, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete, that your joy, some of your translations may say, will remain full. John wants the people of God to reflect the joy that God has for them as they abide and live and experience this deep relationship that they have with God because of Jesus. This is what John is writing about. It goes on in verse five. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him, talking again about Jesus. This is Jesus's message. And we proclaim it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So for your joy, For your joy and for my joy and for God's glory, John starts with Jesus' message. And Jesus' message is this. For your joy, you've got to start with God as he is and as he reveals himself to be. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. I mean, running contrary to our natural tendency to, to put ourselves as the starting point for our understanding of everything to putting ourselves at the center of the universe by which everything else around us has to be defined by us. no, God is the starting point. He is the reference point. And if you're going to understand this fellowship, and if you're going to experience this joy, then you've got to start with him, who He is and how He's revealed himself. And John says, first and foremost, God has revealed himself, not in my own idea, but in the message that I heard from Jesus as light. He is holy. He is pure. He is truthful, and there is no darkness in him at all. This is where we have to start. When God is the starting point and the reference point, he becomes the one that defines not only who he is, but who we are. And we only understand our relationship to him as he defines it. This is what John is saying. And now, in the last few verses of this chapter... John is going to show us a few ways, a few delusions that we have when we fail to put God as the reference point and the starting point. John's going to expose a few ways and delusions that we fall into about our own sinfulness and about God's holiness. A few delusions that we tend to live in and live with that rob us of the fellowship that God has for us with himself and the joy, the joy that's supposed to mark God's people. So for your joy and for God's glory, John is going to show us what it looks like, what it looks like to be in right fellowship with God. Now, before we get there, I want to just read you something that a man named J.C. Ryle wrote in the opening paragraphs of his book, Holiness. I just want to help set this stage and, and, and come at it a little bit differently for you. So listen to what J.C. Ryle said. The person that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would ever build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. I make no apology for beginning this volume of papers about holiness by making some plain statements about sin. And this is what John is going to do in a minute. He is going to make some plain statements about sin. The plain truth, Ryle said, is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification and conversion and sanctification are simply words. They're names which convey no meaning to the soul or mind. The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creation in Christ, listen to what he says, is to send the light of his holiness into his heart and to show him that he is a guilty sinner. The material creation in Genesis began with light, and so also does the spiritual creation. God shines into our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, and then spiritual life begins. Listen to what Raoul says here. Dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. If a man does not realize the most dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. The next few verses, John is going to make some plain statements about sin, in hopes that we do not continue to live with dim and indistinct views of our sinfulness in relation to God's holiness. It's going to get very real, it's going to get very personal. But this is for your joy. It's for your joy and for God's glory. So look at verse 6. Let's see what John has to say. He goes on. If we say that we have fellowship with Him. So, if we say, if we profess with our mouth that we have this fellowship with God, this deep and abiding relationship with God. So, what He's saying is if we make the most basic of Christian confessions, because at the heart of the salvation and redemption is a redemption to God. A restoration of the relationship that we were designed to have with God. So the most basic of Christian professions, if you say that you are a Christian, is that you have this relationship with God. So if that's you this morning, if you say that I am a Christian, I have this relationship with God, John is talking very, very clearly and distinctly to you. If you say that you have fellowship with God, please listen to John. He says, while you walk in darkness... If you say you have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness. John is trying to bring back these images again, these images of light and and darkness. So if God is light, if God is utter purity and holiness and truthfulness, what then is darkness? It's the opposite, right? It's the opposite of holiness. John is saying if you profess to live in this relationship with God, but yet in your life you walk. You presently and actively, currently walk in darkness. Your life reflects the opposite of a life that's been transformed by the holiness of God. If the attitudes of your heart and the thoughts of your mind and the actions of your life do not in any way reflect the purposes and will and grace of God, John is saying. If you confess or profess to be in relationship with God, but yet you walk in darkness, there's nothing about your life that speaks of the transforming power of God's grace. He says, you lie. You lie. If you walk around with this idea that you can say that you're a Christian, that you live in this abiding relationship with God, and that God just loves you exactly as you are, and you sense or feel no need to transform or change, John's saying, you lie. You lie. You, you lie. God does, yes, love you exactly where you are, but his purpose is not to leave you there. His purpose is not to leave you there. God loves you, yes. He loves you with an agenda, though. And his agenda is to transform the character of your soul to reflect the character of his son, Jesus. God loves you as you are, yes. But he loves you with an agenda to change you, to transform you. That's why the gospel and the salvation of God is often spoken of as God giving us a new heart and a new spirit with new desires. The the taste buds, our spiritual taste buds become transformed. We now want the things that God wants. We now want the things that make much of God. We now find joy in honoring God. Yes, he loves you as you are, but he does not leave you there. And John says, if you confess this fellowship with God, yet Walk in darkness. You lie. You are a hypocrite. And you do not practice the truth. So how can you tell if your relationship that you profess is legit? Well, there should be some evidence of change in your life. This is what the grace of God does. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Titus, in Titus chapter two, verse 11, he says this. Or the grace of God has appeared. And the grace of God has appeared and it's bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. It brings the restoration of this relationship with God that John is talking about. And it's appeared to all people. But Paul says this, not only has it appeared, but it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age while waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The grace that brings you into this relationship with God, the grace that restores this relationship that God has created for us to have with Him is not a grace that simply says, you're okay the way you are. God doesn't extend His grace towards us to save us because we're okay. He extends it precisely because we're not. Because we're not okay. And God's grace is always driving. God's grace is always compelling. God's grace is always training us in righteousness. It's always transforming us into the image of his son. The grace that brings us into this relationship with God is just the beginning of its work. It doesn't leave us there. We're changed by that same grace. John is getting after is this idea, and you'll see it woven through the rest of his statements, is that we, we tend to not take sin, or, or really we tend to not take all sin seriously enough. When we start with ourselves as the reference point in our universe, when the universe spins around us, we become the starting point for how everything is defined, including sin We don't take it seriously enough and we begin to subdivide it. And we say, these things are acceptable. These attitudes and these thoughts and these intentions and these actions, they're acceptable, but these aren't. We begin to say, you know, this is an okay sin. It's not that bad. I can lie on my resume. I mean, I'm trying to get a better job to make more money so I can give more to missions, right? It's okay. I can lie on this tax return. I mean, I can't clearly explain to the IRS exactly why I shouldn't have to pay that, but it's OK. It's no big deal. I'll have more money to actually give when I get that check back. But this over here, this thing over here. no, 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 that's unacceptable. That, that's unacceptable. See, John is, is right now, he's just dealing with one aspect of sin, and that's how sin works its way out into our life, how it, how it shows itself in our, in our actions. And we just simply don't take all sin seriously enough. Andrew Bonar, a a theologian of the 17th century, he said this. He said, it's not the importance of the thing. So so when you think about a particular action, because John's talking about actions right now, when you think about a particular action, he said, it's not the importance of the thing, but it's the majesty of the lawgiver that is to be the standard of obedience. We don't take all sin seriously enough because we fail to see all sin Regardless of the thing, all sin, we fail to see it first as an offense against the holy God. When we're the center of our universe, we can only see it in reference to ourselves and our wants and our desires. And what John is saying is if there has been no transformation to your desires, no transformation to your motivations, no new attitudes that are producing new actions at first for God's glory, John is saying that there is actually a very serious reason for you to doubt that the fellowship that you profess is actually legitimate. If you claim to have fellowship with God while you walk in the darkness, you lie. And you do not practice the truth. You don't practice the truth. But he goes on, he said, verse seven, if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we'll explain that in just a few minutes, He said, we have fellowship with one another. Now this, just to help you as you read your Bibles, this is one way of better understanding exactly what John is talking about when he's talking about the fact that we don't practice the truth. You see, there were these people. So John says, you don't practice the truth. And then he says, on this other side, if you were to confess your sins or walk in in the light as he is in the light, you'll have fellowship with one another. So they must not be having fellowship with one another. There were these people that were in the church that were teaching others that you could have a relationship with God, that you could live in this deep and abiding relationship with God through Jesus, but have nothing to do with God's people. But that was okay. In fact, it was actually beneficial, that you actually had a greater knowledge and a greater relationship with God, and therefore you didn't need God's people. And in doing that, they were very casually and very indirectly redefining their understanding of sin, because God said, this is it. I'm going to sum it up in two commandments. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And these guys said, no, 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 you can love God with everything that you are and live in fellowship with him, but you don't really need them. You can love Jesus, but you don't need his church. You can love Jesus, but you don't need his bride. You can love God, but you don't really have to care about his kids. And that's incompatible with the truth of who God is. It's a redefinition of sin. It's not taking it seriously enough as God has defined it. If you claim to have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness, you lie. And you don't practice the truth. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. And we'll explain that in, in just a minute. But I want you to catch how people would hear this. So they're sitting there listening to this and, and he says, you, you, you lie and you don't practice the truth. But if you confess your sin, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. And you go, okay, great. There are people here listening. But that, that is perfect. I, I'm telling you, John, I get that. Jesus has cleansed my soul from sin. Therefore, now I have no sin. You see, there was this idea back then that it isn't too far off from some, from some, from some ideas that exist today, that the body and the soul are, 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 are two separate things that have nothing to do with each other. Back then, people would say that the soul and the, and the material world are, are two separate things and the material world doesn't matter. Your body doesn't matter. The world around you is, is secondary to the soul. So the Christian message would be proclaimed and people would, would talk about being forgiven and being cleansed and their soul and their spirit would be made right with God. So therefore, what you did with your body didn't matter. It's secondary. Your soul is now cleansed. What you do with your flesh, it's of no importance because that is not as important as the spirit. And John's anticipating this line of reasoning. He's anticipating this objection. So he goes on to verse eight. Because if we say that we have no sin, if you actually were to believe that, that you actually have no sin, that you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. And the truth is not in you. See, John's getting after this fundamental misunderstanding on the nature of indwelling sin. In the first few verses he was talking about the action of sin this this what we see in our life what we see in our in our behaviors now he's saying look if you were to actually say that you have no sin you're fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of indwelling sin yes the power of sin has been broken yes jesus has destroyed the power of sin over you but the presence and the temptation of sin still remains strong in your flesh You will not be free from the presence and temptation and the battle with indwelling sin until the day that he returns and he makes all things new. Yes, you are no longer under the power of sin, but yes, you are still very much in the presence and temptation of sin. And if you were to say that he has cleansed you and now you don't have any sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If you walk around and say, well, I used to sin. Yeah, I was very much a sinner. There was a time in my life when, when I actually sinned, but now I don't really struggle with that anymore. I don't really have any sin of which to deal with. I mean, there are a few struggles in my life, but I haven't sinned in a long time. John said, if you, <laughs> if you say that you have no sin, you are deceived. You are deceived. It's vital when we talk about this that you remember, you remember the deceitfulness of, of sin. I mean, we want so desperately to think that we have an accurate and reliable view of ourselves, don't we? I mean, don't you desperately want to think that you have got an accurate view of yourself, that you really know yourself and that you really know your soul and you can trust it? The reality is on this side of eternity, that's not always true. It's not always true because of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitful nature of sin. What, what my, one of my heroes, Paul Tripp, said, the fact that sin actually lives in a costume. We forget this. He went on to say that you, you can't grieve what you don't see and you can't confess what you haven't grieved and you can't repent of what you haven't confessed. So in order for sin to do its work in you, it must present itself as something other than it really is. And you remain deceived about the truth of it. Tripp would go on to say this. Hopefully it'll help you. He said, life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. An impatient moment. Have you ever had an impatient moment of yelling at somebody? You ever been there? Can you think of one? An impatient moment of yelling? Where is the costume of zeal for truth? Lust. Anybody want to claim that one? Lust masquerades as a love for beauty. Gossip, this doesn't exist, nobody gossips, right? Gossip lives in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. The fear of man, the fear of what other people think about you, being controlled by the thoughts and perceptions of other people, that gets dressed up as being a peacemaker or having the heart of a servant. Pride. Pride in always being right. Anybody struggle with self-righteousness in here? The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that a significant part of the DNA of sin is deception. The bottom line is this, that sin causes us not to see ourselves with Accuracy. The deceitfulness of sin causes us to not see ourselves with accuracy and we tend to not only be blind to who we really are, because of the deceitfulness of sin, we tend to be blind to our own blindness. John's saying, if you say that you have no sin, that you're okay now, you don't really have any sin anymore, he said, you have deceived yourself. You are deceived and the truth is not in you. John's not done. He's gonna keep going. He said, if we confess to live in this deep relationship with God while our life shows no fruit of transformation, no fruit that the thoughts and the intentions and the desires of our heart have been and are being transformed to reflect the holiness and the glory of God. He said, we're not only walking around as hypocrites, we're not only self-deceived liars, but with our profession to be in this relationship with God, while there is no evidence of transformation in our lives, it's actually worse. We call God a liar. We call God a liar. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, if you were to say that now you have no sin in your life, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. When we confess to be in right relationship with God and yet fail to acknowledge the reality of the depth of sin in our own hearts and our ongoing need for his grace and for his forgiveness and for his cleansing and for his restoration. We actually make him a liar, John says, and his word is not in us. We make him a liar about the nature of his character and his holiness. We make him a liar about his justice. We make him a liar about the incarnation We make him a a liar about what his word says about why he sent his son to this earth to live the life that we were created to live. We make him a liar about what his word says about the cross. We make him a liar about saying that our sin is such an offense to his holiness that our sin demands justice. And the only justice of a sin against an eternal God is an eternal punishment. We make him a liar about the sacrifice of his son on the cross, in our place, for our sin. We make him a liar about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We make him a liar about his promise to send his spirit to not only give us a new heart, but to give us a new spirit, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to continue to transform us into the image of his son. John says, when you confess to know him, apart from ever really seeing him for who he is and seeing yourself for who you really are, Said you're a hypocrite. You lie. The truth is not in you. You are deceived. And worse, you make God a liar. This is what he's saying, and this is kind of where we need to talk. Because, in a nutshell, the problem is partly this. We just simply do not take all sin seriously enough. When we live with ourselves at the center of the universe. We have an attitude and a tendency to only define things in reference to ourselves and our wants and our needs, and we simply do not take the nature of sin seriously enough. And because of that, we walk around as hypocrites, claiming to be in a relationship with God, a transforming relationship with God, while there's no fruit or evidence of it in our life. No, not even joy in our life. We walk around as liars. We live in deception, self-deceived, deceived by our own enemy, deceived by the deceitful nature of sin. We deceive ourselves, John says, and the truth of God is not in us. And what John is after in writing this to this church, and what he's after, as we read it for us this morning, we are not to be delusional about sin. We can't be delusional about sin. John said, God is light. He is holy. And in him there is no darkness. I remember what what Ryle said. I read it to you in the beginning. He said that God shines his light, his holiness, his character. God shines his light into our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, then spiritual life begins. It starts with God when he shows us who he is and when he shows us who he is, we see ourselves for who we are and then there's a response. And John said the response is not to be delusional about sin. No, you can't be delusional about sin. No, let him show you who he is so that you can see yourself for who you are and then you can rightly respond. I used to live in in Minnesota as I did an internship with a pastor up there. He told this story in a sermon and I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it and I'm gonna tell it to you and I hope it helps you as we begin to turn the corner here. You can close your eyes if you want and try to imagine what I'm gonna tell you if it helps you. But he says, imagine that you're in a, a room with the lights off and it's completely dark. And you're in this dark room with this horrible monster called sin. And this monster is ready to devour you alive. But you're also in this room with this great knight in a full coat of shining armor named Christ and he's ready to save you. But here's the thing, you can't see because you're in the dark. And in the dark, the monster might have a warm and and furry coat that, that feels comfortable and it feels attractive. And the armor of the night might feel cold and impersonal and forbidding. But when the light comes on, when the light shines in, you can see sin and Christ for what they really are. You can see sin as a horrible destroyer and Christ as a glorious savior. And when the light goes on, sin doesn't drop dead. When the light goes on, sin doesn't drop dead, but the battle actually begins in earnest. When the light goes on, you see sin for what it is and you see Christ for who he is and you see sin the way that God sees it and you begin to hate it and you begin to fight it. And the way that you begin to fight it is what John is going to talk about here now, that you begin to confess it. This is how you begin to deal with it. And the light of God's holiness and truth shines in your heart. And you see him for who he is. And you see yourself for who you really are. And you see sin the way that God sees it. The way that you begin to fight it is not to create delusions about it and to somehow convince yourself that you can live in existence with light and darkness. No, it's to confess it. It's to fight it and to deal with it. This is what John says. Look at verse nine. It says, if we confess our sins. Very important little phrase there. If we confess whose sins? Yeah, our sins. Let's make it even more personal. If you confess whose sins? My sins. Say say, 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 my sins. We're, We're very adept at confessing other people's sins, aren't we? We're really good about confessing other people's sins to other people and to God. But no, John says, here's where the fight starts. If you confess your sins, and let me help you understand confession here as quickly and as simply as I can. Hopefully it can kind of just remove any kind of confusion you've ever had about confession. Confession is simply this. You're just going to agree with God about your sin. That's all confession is. You're going to agree with God about your sin. You're going to recognize your sin for what it is. You're going to see your sin the way that God sees it, and you're going to bring it into the light, and you're going to confess it to him. You're going to agree with him about your sin. You're going to come to God and say, God, I am being a sluggard. I am being lazy. God, I have committed adultery in my heart for hours a day on my computer at work. God, I am a gossip. I do not... Love your people. Confession is seeing your sin the way that God sees it and agreeing with Him about it. And I know it does not sound fun. And it is not pretty. But don't forget the deception of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Don't begin to think that God doesn't already see it. Don't begin to think, oh, what's He going to think if I come to Him and tell Him this is what I've been doing? He already knows. He already knows. Confession is simply agreeing with him. It's agreeing with him about your sin. It's actually calling your sin what he calls it. You don't struggle to get up in the morning sometimes. You're lazy. You're lazy. Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. As I was telling the first service, I was thinking about this last night. And you can actually say, in all honesty, we actually do have a name-it-and-claim-it doctrine around here. If you think about it, you can actually say, yes, they they talk about a name-it-and-claim-it doctrine. It just has to do with our sin. You name it and you claim it, and you own it, and you confess it to God. That's what confession really is. And when you confess, let me encourage you with this. When you confess your sins to God, use the words God uses, Use the words the Bible uses. And our tendency to get out from under our sin, we like to redefine our sin. We like to come to God with struggles. You don't have struggles, you have sin. As Chris was reminding me between services, there's no grace from the cross for your struggle, there's only grace for your sin. You need to use the words the Bible uses. When you name your sin and agree with God about your sin, and the words are sometimes harsh, they're sometimes severe, but so is your sin. And our problem is not seeing our sin in in light of a holy God. And we'd like to redefine it, make it more acceptable, make it more appealing. It's not appealing, it's sin. And you need to confess it, and to agree with God about it. And when you do, John says that God is faithful. He's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins. So here's God in this whole process. He's faithful. In this confession of your sin, and this agreeing with him about your sin, He is faithful. He's not moody. He, he's not capricious. He, he, he's faithful. He's always with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's faithful to his promises to you. I mean, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus on the cross the wrath of God for your sin, being exhausted in his body. What did he say when he was up there? He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus is our God who wants to forgive those who come to him and confess their sins and receive his forgiveness. This is what he wants. He wants us to agree with God about our sin and to receive his forgiveness. And after he said, forgive them, what did he say? He said, it's done. It's done. It's done. God is faithful to forgive when you come and agree with him about your sin. And he's just. Jesus said it was done. God's wrath has been poured out on his body in the flesh for your sin. You come to God and you agree with God about your sin. You confess your sin to God. He's faithful to forgive you. He will not demand a second payment for your sin from you. He has exhausted his wrath on the body of his son for your sin. God is not playing games with you. He is just. When you confess your sin to him, he forgives you of all sin. And he doesn't dangle his forgiveness out in front of you like a carrot that you've gotta chase. He doesn't come up with a list of things that you need to do to extract that carrot back, to get that forgiveness from him. No, he's just. He's just. He won't lead you on and make you work for it. He's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive you. And I'll say this for some of us here this morning. If you are not someone who confesses your sin, if you do not come to God and agree with God about your sin and receive the forgiveness that he has for us in Jesus, even if you profess to know God, even if you walk around talking about knowing God and being in a relationship with God and and that you're a Christian who's been redeemed by God, if you are not someone who, who lives in this cycle of agreeing with God about your sin and receiving forgiveness from God through Jesus for your sin, remember, he is faithful and he is just. And when you stand before God in the end, his response to you will be just. You will be judged. And you will be judged rightly and accordingly and you will be sentenced to an eternal torment apart from him forever. We don't understand sin rightly. Our sin is an offense against an eternal God and sin against an eternal God is an eternal sin and either the eternal God pays for your sin in your place for you or you will pay it for eternity yourself. He is faithful If you confess, he will forgive you. Everything, he will forgive you. But he's also just. He is also just. If you don't, you will have to deal with him in the end. John says, if you confess your sins, God in this is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, but that's not it. He says, and to cleanse you. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He says something similar in verse 7. Where he said, if you confess your sins, God, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin. He doesn't just forgive us, he cleanses us. And John's kind of bringing back some big Old Testament pictures here. When John uses a lot of this imagery, it's meant to, to just bring up a bunch of information in the people's minds that they've got stockpiled back here. So when John says that God is faithful to cleanse us from all of our sins, he, he's reminding the people that one aspect of our sin it is this understanding that our sin brings defilement to our, to our soul. Sin leaves a, a tarnish and a residue on our soul. I mean, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you think about something that you've done, this thought and attitude, uh, action that's contrary to the delight and the will of God, you know on the backside of it when you realize what you've done or what you've thought or what you've intended to do, you actually feel dirty, don't you? You actually literally feel dirty. And we can go to scores of counselors and scores of psychologists, get all kinds of patterns and systems to deal with life and to deal with our circumstances differently. But no counselor and no psychologist, no pill to balance a hormone can actually cleanse you from your sin. You can't deal with the defilement. You can't deal with the tarnish. In the Old Testament, there's a massive amount of, of detail and information about how God required his people to come to him clean. They had this series of, of washings they had to do, these ritual cleansings they had to do before they could ever enter the presence of God when they would go to the temple. And God was just repeatedly reminding his people of his holiness and their sinfulness, but pointing towards Jesus, the one who, the one who would bring the ultimate cleansing that we needed to be in relationship and in the presence of God. John's saying, if you confess your sins to God, if you agree with God about your sin, if you name it and if you own it, as God sees that he is faithful and just to forgive you, but he doesn't just forgive you, he cleanses you. He cleanses you. The guilt and the stain of your, your sin, the defilement and the tarnish on your soul, it's gone. The blood of Jesus washes it away. Not just forgiveness, but cleansing but it takes confession it takes agreeing with God about your sin and so many of us miss this forgiveness and we miss this cleansing and in the end we miss this relationship and we miss this joy because we've redefined sin we haven't really confessed our sin because we've not seen it for what it is we haven't agreed with God about it there's no cleansing for that struggle have sin and the issue standing between you and God and the relationship that he has for you is sin and the way that you deal with that sin is confession it's agreeing with him about it but then receiving by faith the forgiveness that he has through the blood of his son Jesus and the cleansing that washes away, washes away the guilt the condemnation the stain this is what John is after and he said, there's another part, even a practical part to this. Not only has sin created this, this junk in our relationship with God that requires this confession of sin and this receiving of forgiveness, but no, when we do this, he said, we actually can have fellowship with one another. He says, so, so many of us have these relationships with one another. You come into our offices every single week to talk about them. These relationships where there's been a lack of, of intimacy and unity that's grown up. Or there's bitterness or someone has sinned against you and you've allowed bitterness and anger and resentment to grow up or you've sinned against somebody and you're bitter and you're angry about them and sin has begun to do its work of murdering and destroying that relationship. And the way to dealing with that relationship is confession. It's confessing your sin to God, receiving His forgiveness and then confessing that sin to one another and allowing your brother or your sister to offer you the forgiveness that you need to see the relationship restored. The way to redeeming those relationships is confession and repentance and the receiving of forgiveness and cleansing. I mean, honestly, this really is just the cycle of a healthy Christian life. It's really the the two-stroke engine of a healthy Christian life. Confession, agreeing with God, receiving His forgiveness. This is what it looks like when John talks about in verse 7 to walk in the light. This is walking in the light. This is your life laid open in the light of God's character and holiness, seeing you for who you are and agreeing with God and then running to him for forgiveness and cleansing. And as we walk in the light and live in the light, we see ourselves for who we really are. And as we see ourselves for who we really are, we see the grace of God for what it really is and we see the grace of God for what it really is and the magnitude of the grace of God for what it is, we can see ourselves a little bit more clearly. A little bit more clearly. And we see ourselves a little bit more clearly. The grace of God gets bigger and bigger. This is just the cycle of what it means to walk in the light of God's holiness and goodness and grace. This is what God has for his people. And yes, there are times when you see yourself for who you really are, it is painful. But I want you to remember this. Just, just seeing yourself for who you really are when God shines that light in your soul, that's actually a gift of his grace. That's actually a product of God's grace. Those painful moments of, of accuracy, of, of self-recognition, It may not feel like grace, and it may not feel like love, but that's exactly what's happening. The God who sent his son, who loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins, he works so that we would see ourselves clearly, so that we would see him clearly, that we wouldn't fall prey to these self-delusional ideas of our sin and his holiness, so that we would see him for who he is and see ourselves for who we are in humility and we would run to him. We would run to the only one who can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness and restore the relationship that he's created for us. This is what John is after. God is good. He is good. He is holy. He is faithful. And he is just. And if you come to God and say, this is my sin. This is it. I am agreeing with you about who I am. Here it is. His response will be, I've paid the price for that sin. I've paid the price for that sin. I love you. I forgive you. And you are forgiven and cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. That is how you become a Christian. That is how you live every single day as a Christian. That is it. It doesn't get more complicated than that, but it hurts sometimes. But even that accurate sight is a product of his grace. And as we read this scripture, we always like to respond to God's word somehow, but the only right response to what John is saying is simply this, confession. It's just confession, And the receiving of God's forgiveness. And that's what we're gonna do in just a couple of minutes. This is why we do what we do every single week after the preaching of God's word, when we give a couple of minutes of of silence and and reflection. It's also a time of confession for you to deal with God and to let God deal with you. And so in a minute, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna pray that God's light, his holiness, his character shines in your heart and that you would respond rightly, that you would agree with God about your sin, that you would confess your sin, that you would beg him to forgive you, that you would receive his forgiveness. The blood of Jesus would cleanse you from all unrighteousness, whether that's the first time you do it, or whether you've not done that for 40 years. That's what I'm going to pray, and that's what we're going to do. And after that, we're going to take communion together, where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken for our sin, his blood poured out for our sin, that we could be cleansed from all of our unrighteousness and then we're gonna sing and then we're gonna celebrate and we're gonna make much of God. And so I'm going to pray and then here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna let you deal with God. I'm gonna let him deal with you. Some of you, you may just need to get down on your knees and pray. You need to let the Holy Spirit begin to work in your heart and when you sense his presence, when you sense that conviction, don't run from it run to his light run to what he's showing you about yourself bring it to him and agree agree with him about it receive his forgiveness so let me pray for us and then we'll we'll go on God I am so thankful that you are good that you are faithful that you are just that you are light In you is no darkness at all. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you came to this earth and you didn't join us in our sin, but you died for our sin. I thank you that you are wholly different, wholly other than us. That you are not a God that we have fabricated and and created in our mind or that we can play games with or manipulate. I thank you that you are faithful, that you are just, that you are, are good. Now I ask God that you would your light shine in our hearts that would compel us, drive us towards confession, to agreeing with you about our sin and receiving from you forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. That we could have this relationship with you and the joy, the unshakable joy that comes from having a redeemed and restored relationship with you in the light. We ask these things for your glory and our joy and Jesus name Amen